our system of rules and enforcement failed to protect consumers and investors. The failures were extensive and costly. They caused enormous damage, not just to those who were the direct victims of predatory practice, fraud, and deception, but to millions of others who lost their jobs and their homes or their savings in the wake of the crisis. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Wednesday, September 23rd, and that was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. At the top of the podcast, he was talking to the House Financial Services Committee earlier today. He was looking back at what got us into this crisis in the first place. And Adam, you and I are going to be looking back today as well at one of the very first pieces that we collaborated on. The first hour-long documentary we did for This American Life and NPR called The Giant Pool of Money. How time flies. That was a year and a half ago we first did that program. And today on the podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of the people that we interviewed in that original program, finding out what they're up to now, a year and a half later. Great. But first, let's do our Planet Money indicator. It is 13%. That is the increase in the number of mortgage applications last week. That's the highest level since May. The Mortgage Bankers Association says of those applications, over half, 64%, were people seeking to refinance their loans. More people are trying to get new loans or modify their existing loans because the price of borrowing is so cheap. It has dropped so much. The average rate on a 30-year fixed loan fell under 5% last week, and that's also a first since May. Right. And all this talk of housing, it's making me nostalgic. So so you and I, probably the most famous thing we've ever been a part of is that hour-long show, The Giant Pool of Money. It really led to Planet Money. NPR asked us to sort of take what we did in that hour-long documentary and figure out how to do it in an ongoing, sustained basis. We spent months interviewing people from every step of the chain in the mortgage securitization, just trying to understand the crisis and really trying to answer a very basic question. Why did the financial services industry, in a total change from the entire history of finance, suddenly start rushing to make lots of loans to people who could not afford to pay them back? And in trying to answer that question, we talked to all sorts of different people in this mortgage chain, from people in danger of losing their houses to foreclosure, all the way up to the people on Wall Street who ultimately funded a lot of these bad loans that were now going 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 bust. We did that program in May of 2008. Well, this week on today's podcast and also on Fridays in a couple of days and on Morning Edition on Friday and on All Things Considered Thursday and on This American Life this weekend – we're going to be revisiting a lot of the people that you and I have not talked to in a year and a half to see how they fared. And, you know, since we did the show, there's been a big global financial crisis. We want to see how they're doing now. Yeah, regular Planet Money listeners might be familiar with that crisis, um, as might everybody else in the world. So I was very excited to reconnect with a lot of these people because I've been thinking about them a lot as this crisis has changed and grown and gotten worse over the last year. Today we'll be hearing from two of those people. One, a Marine who, when we talked to in the first program... He was facing foreclosure. His name is Richard. Uh, the other guy we'll be hearing from, at the time we talked to him the first time, he worked in structured finance, packaging mortgages and selling them off to investors. His name is Jim Finkel. Um, and in the original program we did for This American Life back in May of 08, we met both of these people in the opening two minutes of the story. And we're going to play that opening two minutes for you right now. This is the original story, which aired a year and a half ago. And it starts with you, Adam. 
and you're talking to Ira Glass about an event you were at. And let's just remind people that Ira was suffering from laryngitis at the time. Right. So, Adam, where are we? I recorded this at the Ritz-Carlton in lower Manhattan. It's a black-tie dinner. It was just a few weeks ago. And um, you, by the way, are NPR's international business and economics correspondent. That's right. I was there for my job. They're giving out awards for all these financial securities, uh, including the one that nearly brought down the global financial system, you know, in the whole subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, At this time, I'd like to ask all of our stars to please assemble over here on the left side of the stage. Uh, This guy is a legend. He's a granddaddy of our industry. I'm sitting at this dinner with Jim Finkel. He's kind of nervous because he's up for CDO of the year for the CDO he created, Monterey. Now, the CDO, that's what we're talking about. That's the financial instrument that was central to this global credit crisis we're in. And and, and they gave awards for this? These guys were giving each other awards for doing that? Well, let me me just say, they, they were aware that there's a certain irony giving awards to the instrument that almost destroyed the world economy. And they did consider canceling this year, but it's been a really tough year. It's been really gloomy for them. Honestly, I know this sounds... uh, I was really happy to see there were no no major suicides. People weren't jumping off bridges. Um, There weren't a lot of personal disasters. Now, that same week, a few days earlier, across the river in Brooklyn, I went to a completely different kind of gathering. It was not black tie. It was put on by the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America. It was people on the opposite side of the mortgage crisis, people facing foreclosure, trying to figure out how to keep their homes. I met this one guy, Richard. He's a Marine. He's this big guy, over six feet tall. And... When he came back from Iraq a few years ago, he bought one of these fancy new mortgages with an adjustable rate. Recently, his rate reset. It's gone up by more than $2,000 a month, and he's fallen behind on his payments. It got to the point where, at one point, my son had $7,000 in a CD, and I had to break it. And I mean, that really hurt, because I was saving that money for his college. I mean, I put, I put two thousand back, but it's like you can't have a future. They put you in a situation where, after a while, you're you're gonna fail. It's hard. So that was May two thousand eight. Obviously, a lot happened since then. Uh, let's start with Richard, uh, the Marine. Alex and I got to visit with him this week, and. In the course of that first hour, we learned that Richard had gotten a shady mortgage and that his broker had lied. Uh, though Richard would have qualified for a low fixed rate mortgage, his broker put him in this higher sort of really lousy adjustable rate mortgage because we think his broker was able to make a bigger commission. And the broker lied on the application saying Richard made $195,000, even though Richard only made $37,000 a year at the time. Right. And in that original program, we went with him as he tried to sort of rectify the situation, get his mortgage modified. Uh, He was dealing with a group called NACA, the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America. And at that point in spring of 2008, things weren't looking very good for him. But then when we actually talked to him this week... He had some good news to report. With the help of NACA, the payments were cut in half. So it's very manageable now. It's amazing when you learn what happened to him. It's the best story I think we've heard out of this whole crisis. Richard went from paying nearly $6,000 a month to just under three grand. But it was not easy. It wasn't like someone just 
handed him this freebie without any hard work. It, it was a fight. It was a real fight. It took most of the last year and a half to get to this good situation. The problem was that Richard, and this was typical of a lot of people we talked to, he bought his house not with one mortgage, but with two mortgages. Uh, NACA was able eventually to solve the problems with the first mortgage, but the second mortgage, NACA could not help him on. And so this last year and a half for Richard has been a lot of fighting with one or both of his mortgage servicing companies. He's been waiting on hold. He's been getting transferred to different supervisors. He says he got within a couple of days of actually getting foreclosed on. All that waiting and wondering and just not knowing what his future holds, it's been really stressful for him. Your body just goes through weird things. I didn't know stress was so powerful. You know, your body goes through a lot. Wait, wait, wait. You fought in Iraq as a Marine, and this was more stressful? Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, it, it was. It's it's a lot harder to deal with than, you know, shooting at people and having people shoot back at you. And believe it or not. <laughs> it's actually hard, it's hard to believe. Would you, I mean, having come back from Iraq, you would, I mean, I'm sure you would have thought, well, that was the most stressful thing I'll ever do, right? Yes, yeah, I definitely thought, like, you know, once I could beat that, I could beat anything, but, you know, it's a different type of feeling, you know, because they train you for combat in the military. Nobody trains you for this type of stress. No one. In this situation, I felt totally alone. Like, I had no one to turn to. And for Richard, it was particularly bad because he's basically the sole breadwinner for his whole family. And he was thinking that if he'd lose his house, then his mother and his sick brother would have to move back to public housing. And he'd have to give up on this dream that he has to be the first person in his family to really actually own something valuable, to build wealth for future generations. When you hear people talk about, you know, their family and, and the money that they have now, it's always the, you know, what their great-grandfather, what their grandfather did. And, you know, in, in my life, on my life's work, I just want to be the grandfather, the great-grandfather that, that set the foundation for my son and my son's sons and, and go on so my generation can actually change. So, you know, taking my mother out of the ghetto and putting her into something that she can call her own and we can build something on was, you know, anyone's dream, but especially mine. So Richard's saving grace, it turns out, was one of those local morning shows, Good Day New York. I've actually never seen it. Uh, I guess I should watch it more often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were uh, talking over the details of President Obama's mortgage relief plan. And Richard was watching this and saying, hey, wait a second. They're talking about me. I, I fit all those criteria. I have a mortgage I can't afford, but I do have a history of trying to pay it, just not being able to, largely because of a ridiculously high interest rate. And so even though he qualified, though, it took months to figure out how this plan works and then to convince his mortgage company to actually lower his rate. So it was months and months of arguments and transfers and supervisors asking for different documents, trying to convince people that he actually qualified for this president's modification program. But then, very recently, he got a phone call from a guy at his mortgage company named Peter. He said, uh, Mr. Campbell, we have good news. You know, we're able to modify your, your loan. And um, these are the terms. And he started telling me the terms. And, you know, tears started coming to my eyes when he said, we're going to go from 11 and a quarter down to 3%. And then I said, is it fixed or will it still balloon? He said, there's no balloon. It'll be fixed for the life of the loan. You pay this mortgage for 30 years. The house is yours. It, like, when I talk about it now, I still get that warm and fuzzy. Uh, what'd you do? Did you call, call your fiance or how'd you handle Oh, yeah. No, I, ran around, I ran around the living room and then I went and I grabbed her and I picked her up. And she was like, what's going on? And then I told her and then we started jumping up and down. It was a beautiful feeling. Beautiful feeling. 
I gotta say, Alex, we we finally reached him on the phone uh, last Friday, and then and then saw him earlier this week. And this was the one I was dreading calling because I Richard, really yeah. I just liked Richard. I mean, he was he's such a good guy, you know, a Marine taking care of his family. And I just I just had in my head that when we reached him, he was going to tell us, "Yeah, I got kicked out. Um, you know, I'm I'm living in a really bad situation." And and to hear it actually. Um, and maybe there's not that many people like this, but it actually, the system worked. And I know. he's in good shape. It really made me happy. Yeah, and he actually seems to be one of the most unequivocally positive outcomes that we've talked to. Most of the other people that we caught up with, there was it was a mixed bag. There was some good, but a lot more bad. Jim Finkel, as you remember, we started the show, The Giant Pool of Money, with. He's a guy on the opposite end of the securitization chain. He was uh, He was the kind of guy who eventually bought big bundles of mortgages to people like Richard and packaged them up to sell to investors. I always like to say that the people in our world, which is this kind of narrow world in within Wall Street of structured finance professionals, and this is the market, the, the people that involve, are involved with derivatives and with complex financial engineering, they work in, in, in a very narrow kind of focused area. And they're ten, they tend to be looking... Um, at, at the world uh, almost through a microscope. And I like, you know, I like to sometimes call them bark watchers. They don't just miss the forest for the trees. They miss the tree. They're looking at things so closely. And I think that was the problem. It was incredibly hard for people in the structured finance world to step back far enough to see what was really going on. Jim Finkel, remember, he worked with CDOs. And CDOs are those super complicated financial products that were made out of all these different mortgages. Literally millions and millions of mortgages were bundled and rebundled and then sliced and sold off. And Jim was the one who bundled and sliced them. And he suffered the consequences of his bark watching. He personally put together $5 billion in CDOs. That meant essentially he was responsible for managing $5 billion in assets. And it was a huge amount of money. Jim couldn't believe his good fortune to be managing it all. At least in the beginning, it was good fortune. As the crisis unfolded, that $5 billion went down in value quite a bit. We've probably lost 60% uh, in those deals, uh, probably $3 billion. Um, and um, that's, you know, I, I, I never thought as a, a, a startup manager within 36 months we could ever possibly be managing $5 billion um, let alone that we could possibly, uh, in twelve, the twelve following ones, lose lose sixty percent of it, lose three billion. Um, another aspect of this that was un- unprecedented was the massive amounts of assets under management that managers like like Dynamic Credit were were able to accumulate in a short period of time. And um, um, you know, it, it, it was that in and of itself a recipe for disaster. Um, I, I'd like to say not, but in retrospect, um, you know, it, you know, uh, you know, doing the transactions we did, we did were, were not a good idea. Um, it, that's just a fact. Um, and um, did anyone, you know, threaten me to do these? No. Did you know? I, I did these, you know, by my own free will, and again, be- believing that they, at the time they were the right thing to do. Um, but, you know, I think so did the people trading tulip bulbs in the Dutch market hundreds of years ago. You know, it seemed like all those things had enormous value. It was interesting talking to Jim because basically in his part of the world, they weren't looking at individual people with individual mortgages, people like Richard, who were ripped off by the broker. He was looking at numbers and data, credit scores, historical default rates, loan to value ratios. And Jim and his peers, they didn't realize how irresponsible 
the mortgage market had actually gotten, how bad these loans were, how much fraud there was. Just to explain a little bit about how this all worked, Jim very much wants us to tell you that he is not one of those guys on Wall Street who got bailed out by the government and walked away with an enormous bonus even though his company collapsed. It's not like that at all. He said that his firm is a small asset management firm. They were like a subcontractor to Wall Street firms. So like a big investment bank like Merrill Lynch or Bear Stearns or whatever would come to Jim and say, we have some people want to buy a CDO. Can you put one of those together for us? So Jim would select which subprime or other mortgage-related securities he'd bundle into this thing. And for the life of the investment, he'd keep an eye on all the assets. He'd, he'd be the manager of the whole process. Right. And he says that at his company, Dynamic Credit, they saw what was happening in that field, this field, this esoteric field that they were part of. And they saw some people were doing really risky deals, but that his company, he thought they were being conservative. They actually turned down deals from investment banks if they thought they were too risky. And they resisted pressure from the investment banks to make their CDOs out of riskier and riskier pieces. And he and his partners even invested their own money into these products that they were creating, these CDOs. We put three years of all of our profits as investments in the riskiest parts of our own deals because we believe they'd pay off. I mean, why, why, why would we do that if we didn't believe they'd work? Where's that money now? We wrote all that money off. That's gone. That's gone. And we've had to completely rebuild. There, there's certainly a perception that, oh, the guys who created all this mess are now making lots of money. And, and you're saying you, you, you've lost lots of money. Is yeah. that, are, you, are you typical of the guys who created CDOs or, or are there guys who found a way to, to somehow profit from this period? Well, I, I think you have to distinguish between the investment banks and the capital markets people and the investment managers. You know, a lot of people keep – and even you, Adam and Alex, you know, keep saying to me, you created these CDOs. We were participants in the process of the CDO creation. We, we selected the assets that went into the pool. We put our credibility on the line saying we picked good assets. We're going to manage this portfolio going forward. Uh, but we didn't bring the capital markets um, uh, operation to the market. Uh, Merrill Lynch or um, uh, Deutsche Bank or Citigroup did uh, for us. Um, those guys took a lot of upfront fees out of those deals, and they took bonuses out of those upfront fees. And even though their banks went belly up, um, those bonuses were never clawed back. Uh, they, a lot of people made enormous amounts of money um, and t- took it out in cash and, and moved on. You understand this world. You know what these guys knew when they made these decisions. I mean, was this reckless endangerment? Was this manslaughter? What what? What did they know when they made these choices? How, how much risk they were taking on for their parent institution, for the economy as a whole, for their clients and investors? Um, you know, I, again, I don't think even the people putting this stuff together realized how much risk they were creating and how much risk they were passing on. I think they, I think they actually honestly believed that these were instruments were far less risky than they turned out to be. That being said, I think they, I, I think that people knew that there was a large, still a lar- very large amount of risk that they had to get, you know, get onto other people's books and, and get out of their hair, and and they did everything they could to package this stuff in various formats, and 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 and, and dress up uh, a pig's ear um, in a silk purse um, to get it done. I, I just find your, it, it just interests me because I. 
I could see you just just hating those guys, just saying, you know what? I did everything I could not to do what they did. I did everything I could to create solid products. I avoided the high risk. I really studied this. I really thought it through. I forced my team. You know, yep. we, I mean, our, our, our high-risk CDOs were still lower risk than yep. theirs. And they have – not only did they flaunt every, every rule that you set for yourself, but – one could argue they brought on the crisis that has ruined the products you created. Yet you seem to—it's just interesting to me. You seem to alternate between wanting to understand and defend them and judge them, and it just—it just, it just well, strikes. I, I suppose the reason I, I I do is because I I can't reconcile. I look, I do disdain a lot of the practices that went on, and we pushed as hard as we could against a lot of that and I do feel that people people ruin this market and ruin this product as much as we you know we in our own small way you know here in our corner try to rail against it the problem is what I consciously was willing to do and in fact did also fell apart and I think my difficulty is to say I can't reconcile the fact that I can't sit here in good conscience and say they were all bad and I was good, uh, but what I created um, still performed poorly. And I, I think the fact I, I just I I think that's kind of where my high horse goes gets lame. It just sort of like in terms of like your place in the world and what you think about what you were doing. I, I, what how how has it changed you? How does it change the way you think? Just sort of like seeing what has happened, seeing how finance has spilled into every sort of corner of the actual global economy. Right. You know, well, it's funny. A um, couple things. I mean, some of the mentors I've had who are more experienced and older than me, um, who guided me and um, taught me, they all try to convince me all the time that Wall Street people on Wall Street were bad. Um, now, you know, I started my career pretty much on Wall Street, and I thought all the colleagues around me, you know, I, no one seemed to be bad. Everyone seemed to be trying their hardest, and we made we tried to make rational decisions. We had clients, and we, we thought we were doing well by them. Um, this set of events did convince me that Wall Street, you know, people on Wall Street um, generally are bad, and that the customer does not come first. You know, and it's not a client-driven business. It is a business-driven you know, much more for the um, the, the bank, um, and you know, because I saw how quickly the banks turned on their on their customers, including uh, how the banks have turned on us, uh, how they withdrew their credit lines, how they traded against us, how they they've done anything anything they can, um, and that was dispiriting, and it just proved that my mentors were correct, and I was overly idealistic. So Jim Finkel really, I mean, I think Adam, you and I were sort of struck by how altered he seemed by this experience. And you can sort of hear it. He sounded he, he sounded just different when we talked to him this time than when we talked to him before sort of the crisis became acute, you know? Yeah. And as listeners can hear on Friday's podcast, that was not just true for Jim Finkel, but for a lot of other people. A lot of people always ask us about Glenn Pizzolarusso. He was the guy who made a lot of money in the mortgage industry. He partied with B-list celebrities, drinking Cristal at fancy New York clubs. He's probably the most changed person I've met in 
a long, long time. Yeah, and you'll get a chance to hear from him on Friday's podcast as well as on NPR and on This American Life This Weekend. Um, I think that wraps it up for us today. Don't forget to visit us on our blog, npr.org slash money. And please send us your photos, comments, questions to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>